Hello, hello. Here we are in episode three of the B-Team Bible Study. I'm your host, Kristen Noop. Our scripture for today is Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Before I read it, remember Luke is still recounting these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and the instructions that he was giving his disciples. Okay, verse 6. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Jesus replied, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, that's to say the rest of Israel, in Samaria, the next region over foreigners, Gentiles, non-Jews, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. They say that one of the reasons we might be convinced of the authenticity of scripture, besides things like discovering thousands of ancient manuscripts and extra-biblical support, is the blundering way our protagonists are often described. And by protagonists, I mean the disciples. I mean, Peter cuts off a guy's ear right in front of Jesus. They openly argue about who is the best. All this stuff makes it into scripture. It actually helps to remember that a lot of these guys were probably around 20 years old. I mean, sounds about right. The main character of the biblical story, however, is not the disciples. It is actually the triune God. Triune is a riff on three. There's an old Puritan poem that starts out, Batter my heart, three-personed God. God is one and yet three. This is a mystery and any way that I attempt to explain it will certainly land me in some heretical hot water. Ah, what the heck, okay. God is revealed to us in scripture primarily as Father, Son, and Spirit. Some like the terms creator, redeemer, and sustainer. This threesome is referred to as the Trinity. You can't look up Trinity anywhere in scripture. It's a term that emerged about a hundred years later as the growing church sought to organize and codify itself along lines of consistency, order, and faithfulness. Again, the term Trinity isn't anywhere in scripture, but the black and white words on the page and the lived experiences of believers then and now reveal God in this triune, three-personed way. No more, no less. In fact, there are several verses that mention all three, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the same place. Jesus himself introduces the concept quite nicely. On his last night with his disciples, before he is arrested, he shares a meal with them and tells them about the things that are yet to come. He tells them about this coming gift, the Holy Spirit, that the Father will give. And he says, and I'll read here from John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. So you have the father giving the gift, the son telling his friends about it, and the spirit that is yet to come. Distinction. At Jesus' baptism, we have the spirit of God descending like a dove and settling upon him and a voice from heaven, the father's saying, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Again, father, son, and spirit. And of course, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says to his awestruck disciples right before he ascends into heaven, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of, you know it, Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
It wasn't just Jesus either. In closing out a letter to a church in Corinth, Paul writes, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's 2 Corinthians 13, 14. And there's more. These are just a few. So God is expressed as one and three. God being one and three is not polytheism. We don't worship three separate, distinct gods. There is one God, one divine nature coexisting in three persons. Remember in the very beginning of Genesis, when God says, let us make humankind in our image, there's already community, the Trinity, a family of sharing mutuality and love is present at the beginning. And we are fashioned after that image, unity, harmony, distinction, love. So this triune God is actually the main character of the biblical narrative. All 66 books that cover about 2,000 years of human history from the call of Abraham in Genesis 12 to John's vision of Revelation, they tell God's story. God's story of creation, the corruption of this creation through sin, and the painstaking plan unfolding over centuries of God wooing through relationship a people who might receive God's love, God's lordship, and serve as a light of hope to the world. In our scripture today, when the disciples say to Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? They are asking a very loaded, very relevant question for first century Jews. One that I will get into in another episode because it needs so much backstory. But suffice to say, yet, no. The truly miraculous events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were not in the service of restoring one ethnic group to world domination. Again, this is one of those blundering disciple moments. Future Peter will be cringing again anytime he reads through the things he said and did way back when, which could be further proof of authenticity. They left it all in there. These were written at least a few decades later. They would have had time to edit this stuff out and make themselves look better. What was the point then? What did the triune God accomplish through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? To finally undo the consequences of sin that were introduced way back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Remember Adam and Eve, the ones made in God's image? Remember the situation with the forbidden fruit, the deception, the blame shifting, the consequences? Whether you think of them literally or metaphorically, they are part of our story. My story, your story. We came from somewhere. Sin came from somewhere. And the Bible gives us this narrative to help us make sense of that origin. In Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul takes great care to reveal how Jesus is the new Adam, undoing the curse and the consequences of sin that our first parents ushered in. Jesus defeats the power of sin. In verse 18, Paul says, Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, meaning we are all guilty, we all sin. But Christ's one act of righteousness, that is his obedience to God, his sacrifice, brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Verse 19 goes on to say, because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. So yeah, actually, I guess Jesus was restoring the kingdom but not to an oppressed ethnic group living in Israel in the first century. He was restoring the relationship with creation to creator. He was welcoming all of us back to the kingdom for which we were originally created. And in this kingdom, just like back then, we have a job. We get a job. We have a purpose. And he states it here again. 
And in this kingdom, we get a welcome present. We get God's own spirit to live within us. And this spirit has a very specific function, one that brings purpose and wholeness to our lives and glorifies the triune God in the process. What is it? The Holy Spirit will empower the disciples, empower us to share about Jesus. And this news will spread through us, through God's spirit working through us to the ends of the earth. Okay, so what does all this mean? I mean, when church people talk about our purpose being empowered to witness about Jesus, even I have had seasons in my life where I cringe internally. Does that mean I'm supposed to take up on a street corner? Oh God, please no. Does it mean that I have to entrap my poor airplane seatmate in a conversation about, if you died tonight, do you know where your soul would go for eternity? How many shy Christians are super grateful that air travel is basically off the table right now? Okay, could God be working in and through the eager souls who do take on these practices? Absolutely. Because that's the point. Being empowered by the Holy Spirit is about being in relationship with God. Relationship. Listening, noticing, responding, doing, reflecting, waiting, and boldly sharing about God in the ways and modes the Spirit brings into your heart and across your path. In my experience, being empowered to witness is a lot more like suddenly finding myself in a situation that's drifting towards spiritual things. I might feel my heart rate begin to pick up as I realize that I've entered into a holy moment. Something usually comes to mind, a recent scripture I read, an encounter I had with God in prayer, and I may feel this freedom to go there, to share, to ask a question. Or sometimes it feels like I just had a triple shot of courage and clarity to speak something over someone's life, to validate their choice. Yes, you should absolutely do that. Or to challenge their thinking, a pointed, clarifying question forms in my mind. Or something deeply true about who they are and who they are called to be starts tumbling from my mouth. But it's also much more than that. It's much more than these one-off experiences. I think that being empowered to witness about Jesus makes me uncomfortable because it challenges my worldview. Do I wake up and arrange my time in service to my own little kingdom, my own desires for contentment, control, comfort, and convenience? Do I leverage all my resources, my time, my talents, my treasure, my influence, my advantage to ensure my own desired outcomes? That's the default way of thinking. That's the old life before the Holy Spirit captures our hearts and imagination. And frankly, that life is uninspired. We can do better. It's like being that disciple who asks, Hey, Jesus, are you now going to make my life simpler, happier, and make me more fulfilled through stuff and experiences and regulate all my unpleasant circumstances so I can feel peace and go through life with ease? Guys, that's the 21st century boneheaded question we ask Jesus. Our kingdom has become our own happiness, and it's a dead end. Just like when the first century Jews remained hung up on Jesus restoring Israel to national prominence and overthrowing their Roman occupiers. The Holy Spirit is not our genie in a bottle. The Holy Spirit is not our genie in a bottle dispensing good feelings and ideal outcomes that minimize pain and suffering so we can live happily ever after. The Holy Spirit is of one mind with God, and God is on an unstoppable mission to captivate the hearts and minds of every single person on the planet. This is something we want, too, and we really consider the purpose of our lives. This is ground zero of the human flourishing project that God has always been about, and God wants you to get excited about it and in on this massive project. So our question for the week, who is the Holy Spirit to you? 
Scripture says that the Spirit provides comfort, help, guidance, conviction, and will bring to mind all that Jesus said and taught. The Spirit will go before us, guide our steps, set us up for sharing about Jesus, orchestrate miraculous circumstances that we might do the good works prepared in advance for us. The Spirit will always be with us. But is the Holy Spirit primarily your genie in a bottle? Oh God, please help everything go smoothly so I don't have to experience any pain or suffering. Boring and hey, not biblical. Or is the Spirit your beloved and strong general, a living companion impressing truth upon your heart, charging you with responsibility to be the listener and the doer that God created you to be and assuring that you have the reinforcements and support that you need in this project for world salvation? Take an inventory this week. How do you interact with the Spirit? What kinds of things do you ask for? In what kinds of ways does the Spirit appear in your life? Does your image of the Spirit need a makeover? I know, this is kind of heavy and heady and you might not agree with me. That's okay, I'd actually love to hear about that. I think all of this is worth approaching in prayer. And I really do look forward to hearing what you think. I set up an email so you can email me at bteambspodcast at gmail.com. All right, take care, friends. Mm -hmm.